Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. And before we start, we want to remind all of our listeners that the content of this podcast can be very emotionally difficult for anyone, especially triggering for survivors of trauma. So please don't hesitate to reach out for support if you need it, whether to friends, family, or anonymous hotlines, or any other resource. You can find resource information for survivors on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. And let's get started with one of our dear Katie letter writers and hear from a survivor. 52091. Dear Ms. Costner, as a college student, I experienced two sexual assaults, not as violent as rape, but powerful enough to have changed my life forever. As a result, I became a feminist leader on campus, Brandeis University, 1975-76, my senior year. I was quoted in the Boston newspapers and as a result received encouraging letters from strangers. Those letters helped sustain me through the nasty phone calls, dirty looks, and other trials that followed. When I began to doubt myself, it was comforting to be reassured that what I had said and done was right. My heart goes out to you, and I hope that your courage brings us closer to the day that letters like this won't have to be written. Thank you so much for sharing whoever that was a long time ago. And now we'll meet our um, current guest, Courtney. Courtney, welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. Uh, We are so pleased to welcome you to our program and all of our listeners uh, to the session today. Um, Courtney, would you kindly tell us all a little bit about your background and um, who you are? Hi, so I'm Courtney. Um, I'm from Ontario, Canada, and I was sexually assaulted when I was 16 years old and then again when I was 18 years old. And um, Courtney, could you tell us a little bit about um, maybe that first experience when you were 16? So when I was 16 years old, I was in a relationship with my boyfriend at the time. And unfortunately, it wasn't a very healthy relationship. And I was sexually assaulted 27 times by him. Oh, my goodness. Um can you tell us more about the first? Do you remember the first time? Do you, tell us more about what that was like for you. So I remember a lot of the events. Um, my first time I was actually at his house. And we were down in his bedroom. It was down in the basement. And I remember it was smelling musty and it just wasn't necessarily a nice bedroom um and he and I were chatting and getting along and having a normal conversation and he proceeded to climb on top of me and I was like wait like what's going on I'm not comfortable with this and he's like I'm doing this because of you you need this it's for your own good And he proceeded to take my pants down. And I was struggling with him and I was telling him no and I was telling him to get off of me. And he proceeded to take both my hands and put them above my head and hold them down so I couldn't move. When this first incident happened, how long had you known this guy? 
I had only known him for about a month. And how did you meet him? We actually met, um, we were at our local library. For some reason, that's where all the teenagers hung out. Um, Kind of an odd place to hang out, but (laughs) that's where we all hung out. And I met him there through another friend. And I ended up actually getting along with him really well and getting to know him. Was he just in the neighborhood? Did he go to your school? Uh, He lived by me, and this all happened um, in a period of three months over summer. And so come to find out, he was actually a member of our school. I didn't find that out really until I went back to school in September, though. And he was the same age or older or younger? Uh, He was a year older than I was. Mm Mm-hmm. So this was when you would have been a sophomore or a junior in high school? Uh, I was 16, so I'm not sure how that falls in there. Mm-hmm. Had, did you have two more years left of high school? Yes, I did. Okay, gotcha. So this is going on um, in his basement bedroom. If I can ask a question, oh, what was going through your mind when, when that was all happening? You were describing what he was doing to you and and what you were trying to do. What were you thinking at the time? Or do you even remember? I just remember thinking I needed to get out of there. Um, I knew that it wasn't a safe place at that moment. And I knew I needed to get out of there. So I was trying to do everything I could to be able to leave that situation. It was absolutely terrifying. So tell us, I guess, a little bit about how you got through it, how it ended that, that day, or was it day, night? What time of? This was uh, middle of the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I remember because his parents were at work. Um, but so I ended up kind of after struggling with him for a while, I ended up kind of just letting him go on and do whatever he needed to do, figuring that when he was done, it would just be over and I could get up and leave. And so I actually ended up stop struggling, ended up laying there completely still and so I um once it was all over I was like this can't happen again and I got up and left how did you You actually said that to him this can't happen again yeah and how did you get home I walked home it was only about four or five blocks from my house at the time Mm. and what do you remember that walk I remember crying I cried almost the entire way home. I knew by the time I got home, though, my parents would be home. So I kind of, I don't even know how at the time, I don't know how I managed to console myself, but I managed to kind of get myself gathered and together again um, before I got home so I could walk in my house and my parents wouldn't know what just happened. Were you thinking of telling them? At that time, no. Um, I definitely was more still trying to kind of talk myself through what even just happened. How were you feeling at that time? I was, I felt dirty, if we're being honest. Oh, I hear that a lot, Courtney, you know, the feeling of dirty. What is, what is that? How does that feel to you? Can you describe exactly what that means? Like, did you want to shower? Did you want to scrub off everything? Um, what is, what is that sensation like for you? Um, I, I walked home 
once I got in the house and immediately all I wanted to do was shower. I wanted to hop in the shower and never come out. Um, it felt like a part of me wasn't even my own at that time. I felt like he was still touching me. Like you could physically almost feel his hands on you. Yes. Mm. Were you feeling at the same time, did you feel at all sort of separated from your body at the same time you were feeling that? Not necessarily separated. I remember feeling that like this stuff, like maybe I imagined it. Maybe this didn't actually just happen because there's no way this just happened. So it sounds like you were, well, you were in a state of shock, which would make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. So we definitely want to talk with you, Courtney, about, you know, where you went next in your journey of healing. But I feel like our listeners might be curious to go back to when you said this happened with the same guy 27 times. Um, You know, a lot of people are like, well, if you felt that awful the first time, why would it have happened again? So um, maybe you could share a little bit about how it continued. Yeah, of course. And if we're being honest, that's something I've felt for a very long time is I wonder why I kind of let it go on. And I don't want to say I let it go on. Like I didn't approve these behaviors, but why I didn't just walk away from that relationship. And that's at the time I was kind of just out searching for somebody to love me. I wasn't necessarily getting that attention from my parents at home. Um, So I was searching for someone to be there for me. And so I remember going and I had a conversation with him after. Um, I think it was a couple days later and I had that conversation. And he had convinced me that he did it because I was rude. Um, I don't remember what he said I was rude about, but I remember he did it to prove to me that I can't act a certain way. And so at that time I started to believe like, okay, so this was my fault. So it was punishment. He raped you out of punishment. Yes. So how does he explain the other 26 times then? The same way. Um, He did it because I did something he didn't approve of. And so I talked myself into staying because I would change my behavior. And I would make it so that I didn't do what he didn't like. And the more it went on, the more kind of blindsided I became to the fact that, yeah, this wasn't okay. Like, what was happening was not okay at all. And I kind of just became the fact that, okay, so this is my fault. Like, I'm acting this way, but somehow he's still sitting here telling me he loves me. Sounds like an extreme form of gaslighting. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And I think um, our listeners would find it really interesting to think about how the first incident turned into the next you know what was that first re you know when he reached back out to you after the first time how did he do that that pulled you in so strongly honestly I can't even remember necessarily I just I know he had said to me that we needed to talk and at that time I was like okay yeah we definitely need to talk about what happened because this wasn't okay. And so I went and I met up with him in order to have that conversation about how this was not okay. And ended up leaving that conversation convinced it was my fault. 
And where did that physically happen, the conversation with the guy afterwards? Uh, There was a park about halfway in between the two of our houses. It wasn't a park that anyone really used. It had a pavilion in the middle. So we went and sat at the pavilion at that park. And did he call you, text you? How did he reach back out? He had texted me. Mm-hmm. And did he, what, do you remember what he wrote? I'm curious what, what he wrote. It was, it was literally just, we need to talk about what happened. Mm. It's interesting that he reached out to you though. Yeah. I just find that whole thing kind of befuddling since he's the one who was, who caused, who, who did the criminal act and yet he wanted to talk with you and then he blamed you for it. Yeah, it definitely, even to this day, actually, I find that kind of confusing because he could have just done what he did and walked away and no one would have ever been the wiser to what happened. So you got sucked into this relationship, um, this abusive relationship where he was punishing you for being a bad girl, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, what other, I'm curious to know, and maybe our listeners would be interested to know what other facets of this relationship. I mean, was, was there anything, um, was there any aspect to this relationship that was beneficial or was it sort of continually abusive? Were there other parts of it that were abusive? Was there emotional abuse or other kinds of it? Well, it was already emotionally abusive, but were there aspects of emotional abuse that you are looking back now and seeing or? Um, so at the time, I guess like when he was, wasn't hurting me, he was very, very sweet to me. He almost like, it's almost like he flipped a switch he would go from being what at the time was the most loving, caring person that I'd ever known to this person that could do such awful things. Was there a pattern to it? Do you think Like, did it kind of build, was there tension building at all or was it just sort of random? It was almost night and day. Um, You could never really predict when he was going to change. I think we should talk next a little bit about how it impacted you long-term, Courtney. But one curious question I have is you started out the conversation saying this happened 27 times. Were you, that you said it very deliberately. So were you um, counting or did you have a journal or how did you keep track of the incidents and why? And why do you think? I can't really answer as to why. I kept track of that. Um, I guess I've always just been kind of the person that likes to figure out how often things are happening or how much of something is there. Um, Even to this day, like I work in a retirement home and I'll be pressing our napkins through the iron and I deliberately stand there and count how many there are just so I can see how many there are, even though that number is completely insignificant. Um, so maybe that's why I kept track. Um, but I actually, I had a planner at the time and I'd go through and I'd put a little dot next to every day that something happened. And again, I'm not really sure why I went through and did that. Um, cause even then I had no intention on ever telling anyone that this was happening because I believed it was all my fault and people would hate me because of the way I acted. 
but yeah I used to just go through and put a little dot in my planner beside every date and you said you were worried about how people that people would hate you because yeah. of what you were doing what did you have an indication of that or was this something that you assumed because many survivors do assume that if they talk about what's going to happen, they're the ones who are going to get blamed and they do often get blamed. So I'm wondering what, what precipitated that thinking on your part? I definitely just assumed that that's how people would react. He spent a lot of time telling me that it was because of me that he was doing these things. So I mean, growing up, like any time I was doing something wrong, I definitely got in trouble for that. So I figured as as this was happening, that if I told anyone that it was happening, that I'd get in trouble for it as well, because I believed I was doing something wrong. So coming out of it, when it ended, how did it end and what happened next? It ended because I found out that he... Um, had cheated on me actually now whether that was consensual cheating or whether that was that girl was going through the same things I was I to this day I don't know um but I found out that he had been seeing someone else and at that point I was like okay I definitely didn't do this like this definitely wasn't my fault that he cheated because I didn't cheat so I was done at that point. I was able to draw the line of, no, this wasn't my fault. Did he try and blame you for cheating? Or how did you find out about the cheating? He actually told me, which I find very strange. Um, He just came out and said, oh, by the way, I've been seeing this other girl. He probably assumed that I'd never step away. Did he say, I'd like to keep seeing you and the girl? Or what did he give us a little more context? He kind of just said it in a way that like, he was throwing it in my face. So kind of like, oh, by the way, just so you know, right? Like that kind of attitude that it was just like, I'm going to tell you about this just to see what your reaction is going to be. When you finally shut the door on him, were you afraid that he would retaliate or or he was satisfied that it was over or did he continue to try and pursue you? Um, I kind of just figured that because he kind of just was so blunt in saying that he was cheating on me, that that was kind of his way of being like, I'm done with you. He never reached out to see me again after that. He never even had any interest in me after that, after I said, no, I'm done. And how did you feel when, was it, I'm wondering if when he told you this, if what was your feeling um, when you were able to walk away? In a sense, I guess kind of two ways and they're kind of polar opposites. Um, first way I was relieved. Um, even though I believed I was being punished for whatever I was doing at the time, I was still relieved that I wouldn't, be punished anymore honestly and then I was kind of also like oh crap what do I do now like where do I go from here well that makes some sense too I mean in a way he was you like you needed that that door to be opened and he opened it for you in a way yeah so good now I can leave but yeah it does leave you out there 
on your own. So then what happened next? I didn't tell anyone. I just kind of proceeded to go on with my everyday life. I was in school. I was going to classes. I was having lunch with my friends. Kind of just everyday high school stuff. Um, And it wasn't until October 19th I broke down while I was at school. And I walked out of class. And I remember my best friend at the time, she was in my class and she came out and was like, okay, that's not you. What's going on? Um, I cared deeply about school. So for me to just walk out of class wasn't necessarily typical behavior for me. What, what precipitated you just walking out? Do you remember that moment? I just, I was having... Um, flashbacks I was remembering what had happened I had seen him at school that morning normally I was able to avoid him but he had been by my locker that morning and so I think it was just seeing him that I was like I can't hold this in anymore did he say anything when he walked past the locker or do you think he did so deliberately just to see you I think he did it deliberately kind of as a way to be like I'm still here even though I'm not with you you're always going to remember me type of thing I'm curious also if you saw him in school did you ever see him act manipulatively or you know have power over any of the other women at the school no never um when we were at school he was always that sweet version of himself he never really showed the other side of him to anyone. Did you get to meet his parents? I'm also thinking about um, one of the talk shows I was on had some other survivors on it. And um, also they even brought some rapists, some men who, and their parents. And I remember meeting the parents and thinking, wow, the dad is also terrible. (laughs) Um, you know, what, 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 I'm curious if you, since this was when you were so young and it was at his parents' house, did you ever meet his parents? So I only ever met his parents once in passing. He actually had two moms. And so when you say he had two moms, do you mean, um, he had, both his parents were female and were they in a relationship then together? Yes, they were. Got it. And um, no father figure, male figure anywhere to be seen? No. Okay. And so you only saw them once in passing? Yeah. He, like I said, he was very quick to get me kind of out of his house before his parents could ever see me. But I remember um, I went to the court hearing that he would either plead guilty or not guilty and I remember sitting in the courtroom and overhearing one of his moms say well there's no way he would have ever done this that girl's lying well let's let's do that big jump so what court hearing are we talking about so after I broke down in October I my best friend at the time she convinced me that, okay, you need to tell someone that can help you. She's like, I don't mind you talking to me about it, but there's nothing I can really do to help you. 
so you need to tell your mom. I remember I left school that day. I left early. I called my mom and I said, I'm on my way home. I need to talk to you right now. And so I hopped on the bus, the city bus home, and I got off the bus. And I remember from the time I got off the bus stop to the time I reached my front door, I think it was like three minutes. And those three minutes felt the longest that any time could have ever felt. It felt like it took me 40 minutes to walk that three-minute walk. And I got home and I started crying immediately as I walked in the door. And I kind of just broke down and I was like, Mom, this happened. This guy hurt me. And so in as little detail as possible, I told her what had been happening all summer. And I remember my sister was also home when I got home. And so my mom got up and was like, you wait here with your sister and I'm going to go make some phone calls. And so I remember sitting in the living room with my sister and my sister just kind of looking at me, not really sure what to say because she overheard everything I just told my mom. And my mom comes back in the room and she's like, okay, so an officer's on his way here right now. So she didn't ask if you wanted to report to the police. No. She just called them. Yes. <laughs> um, which at the time I was like, no, I'm not ready for that. But looking back now, I'm incredibly grateful that she did because it's not necessarily a decision at the time I was capable of making for myself. The officer came to our house and they took my statement and and grabbed my mom and had my mom come out and said, so now that I know what happened, what do we want to do about it? I just looked to my mom. I was like, I don't even know what I can do. I was like, I don't know what I want to do and I don't know what the options even are. And my mom looked at the officer and said, I want him arrested. And so I ended up that night, um, my uncle was living with us at the time. And so we waited till my uncle got home and he drove us down to the police station. He didn't know why we were driving down at the time. Um, he just knew that I had to go down to the police station to make a statement. They took me in and I proceeded to tell this officer well, my mom's sitting in another room listening to everything that happened because I was still a minor and that was still her right as a parent to listen in on the conversation. How did you find the police officer's questions? Do you remember how you were feeling or did the, was it a male officer, female officer? Do you remember the gender? It was, it was a male officer. And I remember feeling like the questions were geared to kind of put blame on me for what had happened. Um, what were you wearing? What happened prior to this event that could have led to this? And that should never be the case. I, I don't think. I don't think anyone should ever feel like they're making it out to be the person that is reporting's fault. It's already such an intimidating situation. And now you have an officer looking at you trying to pinpoint if this could somehow be your fault. Then what happened after the interview? After that, my mom called my dad to come and pick me up 
my dad came and picked us up. Wasn't really sure why my uncle wasn't picking us up. He's the one that dropped us off. And we get home. And I had remembered the officer saying, okay, like, he will be arrested tonight. And so, come to find out, my uncle was actually outside his house. And he watched him get arrested so that I could sleep that night knowing that he really was. Almost in a way of not having faith that they would do what they said they would. And I'm sure they would have. But it was nice to have that reassurance that he was arrested and he wasn't going to be around that night because at that point I definitely feared that in some way he'd retaliate and um and they put him in prison overnight or do you know if they they put him in our local our police station had like a little jail area in the basement and so they put him in there overnight um for him to I I guess like they read the charges or whatever after um in a courtroom that next morning then he was charged the next day was there a trial so i remember leading up to everything um going on for the court there was always a possibility that it would go to trial it all depended on we had to go through a court date that he um would either plead guilty or not guilty and he if he said guilty then it would never go to trial but if he pled not guilty to all of the charges then it would proceed to go to trial and the goal of the lawyers that were on my side was to make it so it didn't go to trial because we didn't want me to have to sit there in a courtroom and be interrogated about what had just happened i specifically much to my mother's protest demanded that I had to be there to see him plead because it was almost a way of just being prepared or getting closure and so we sat in that courtroom and I guess I haven't mentioned this part yet so out of the 27 times that he assaulted me because during my interview at the police station that night I couldn't go any further in my interview Because in order to press charges, they have to get a detailed account of every single incident. And so I was only able to get through two of those incidents. So he was only ever charged with um, two counts of sexual assault and two counts of um, what they called forcible confinement. And so I walked into the courtroom just as he said the word guilty. And so... I got to go through and hear him say it, which ultimately was my only goal of that day. He pled guilty to one count of the sexual assault and one count of the forcible confinement, but he did not plead guilty to the others. Although at the time, I was led to believe that he had pled guilty to all four charges. So what was his sentence? He ended up being sentenced to three years of probation. No, sorry, two years of probation, not three. And he had to take classes on anger management. And he had to go to groups. And he had to put his name on the sex offenders registry. But the day he turned 18, that name comes off the registry. Um, I know he actually still lives in the town where this all happened. Um, I've seen him there before. He still lives in the same house. That house was directly around the corner from 
one of my works. I was driving a coworker home one night and I saw him walking into the house. Now, how many years has it been? So it has been eight years since I was first assaulted. And healing has definitely been kind of a complicated process for me. So at 18, I was diagnosed with PTSD because of the assaults. And I spent years trying to get help. And so I was told by my doctor at the time, I've since switched doctors because of this, but I was told by my doctor at the time that there was no one in my area that could help me because we had no one in our area that was trained in trauma therapy. So for almost six years since I was diagnosed and eight years since the symptoms of the PTSD began, I got no help. I had multiple counselors turn me away because they weren't trained to deal with it. And it wasn't until this year that just passed that I switched doctors because I was tired of hearing there's no one that can help you when I truly believed that there was someone out there that could find me the answers I was needing. And I switched doctors and immediately it was actually our first visit when she was meeting me and getting to know me that she sent off a referral to a trauma therapist. So I began seeing someone about two to three months ago. Um, Unfortunately, due to the pandemic and everything, everything's still virtual here. So I do all my therapy over the phone right now. And what do you find helpful about the new therapist? It became very clear to me that although I had found a way of coping with the PTSD just to get through things, um, I wasn't necessarily dealing with the PTSD. So she has started to begin teaching me that distraction isn't dealing with what's going on. So I used to just distract myself in any way possible from whatever my brain was thinking, just so I didn't have to deal with it. But now we're actually starting to work through dealing with it. What kinds of things were you doing to distract? I would just start a hobby or what I thought might be a hobby just to get um, my mind off something. So, I mean, I'm probably going to say I have 15, 20 different started projects in my living room right now that <laughs> I never completed because they were just kind of a sense of trying to distract myself. Um, I also, I have a dog who is amazing and is very reactive to my anxiety and everything like that. And so I would go to her as soon as I got upset. I would just go and cuddle her and love her and use that as kind of a coping mechanism almost. The dog sounds helpful though. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it, it felt amazing at the time because it was able to help me get out of the headspace that I was in and get away from the feelings that I was feeling. But like I said, unfortunately, distraction is not dealing with it. So now what sort of things are you doing that aren't distracting that are dealing? You know, what was that transition like and what kinds of things are helping? So the main thing that we've been working on is when I have a flashback or I'm having a nightmare or just the thoughts start intruding, I'm working on 
finding a way to take that thought and get to the end. So say like I'm sitting there replaying the assault when I have a flashback. So I would replay that assault, but I'd find a way to skip to the end and figure out when the first point after that assault that I felt safe was. And we skip completely over the event and get right to the part where I felt safe in order to allow myself to calm down. And what kinds of things were helping you feel safe? Do you, what, what, are, what are those things? Um, the biggest thing at the time was I'd go home. My parents had two dogs. And so I'd get home after being assaulted and I would go and sit with the dog or I would go and go for a hike and go sit by the water. Um, so very much just trying to get to that point in the memory. And was it a sense then of knowing that he was so far away or that you were completely unlikely to be harmed or hurt? Or was there also a sense of freedom? Like, what does that mean to you that that sense of safety? How did it feel? Like, I can see the idea of safety to me, there's a freeing sense, right? There's a a kind of open airness, but there's also a different type of safety that just means I won't be hurt right now, which kind of, or was it both for you? It was a little bit of both. I guess it depends on which way I chose to calm down. If I was sitting by the water, I was definitely feeling more free um, because I could just sit there and I could watch the water crash over the rocks and I could see how free it was and how easily it flowed. And if I went home and I was going to go cuddle with my dog, it was that sense of safety of I have someone here to protect me. Got it. And a- another question that came to my mind, Courtney, is when he was found responsible for two out of four counts, was there satisfaction in that? Was there frustration in that? So many survivors, number one, never get to even have a trial. And number two, so often, you know, there's a district attorney or someone saying, we won't take your case at all. We're not even going to go interrogate him because we just don't think there's enough evidence. Um, it's a your word against their word. Um, but what, what, what did you find helpful or not so helpful about having that criminal process happen so at the time I remember it being incredibly frustrating that you know what I had been assaulted 27 times I was already only able to charge him for two of those events and he only pled guilty to one I remember being so frustrated because it didn't make sense to me how did 27 doesn't equal one. Um, I, f- I felt like he should have to pay for every single time. But looking back, it, it it's incredible that I even got to see that because it allowed for some level of closure, which a lot of people don't get. And let's, I just want to go a little more about what that sense of closure was like. When you felt closure, was it relief that he, did you feel like he truly believed what he did was wrong? 
Or was it more the relief that there were others, even if he didn't think what he did was wrong, who agreed that it was wrong? Like which direction would you say or or some of both again? So to this day, I don't necessarily know if he believes what he did was wrong. Um, I mean, I'd love to get the chance to ask him that. But it was the sense that someone else believed me. It wasn't just me saying that this had happened. It was that someone else believed that it had. And they didn't see it as my fault. It was knowing that, you know what, like, I wasn't just saying this and people were being like, yeah, okay, that I believe that happened. It was the feeling of, yeah, I'm saying this. And people know this happened and people believe this happened. I know we're getting toward the end of our interview with you, Courtney. Um, I'm curious now, you know, that you've started this much more helpful therapy. Um, what do you see happening in your future, you know, relationship wise? Um, you know, what's, what's next for you? So currently I'm in, a relationship that I've been in for almost four years now. It'll be four years in January. And I see myself moving forward with that relationship and allowing all that is good to come to me. Um, I want to have kids and I want to marry, hopefully, this person. Um, I'm hoping he feels the same way. But I, I want to move forward and feel everything that would allow me to be happy. That sounds fantastic. Um, I, I want to ask a quick question about the part, your partner. Um, what does he do that makes you feel safe and valued? He is always there to listen. And I mean, he may not always know the right thing to say. Most people never do. But the fact that he'll even sit there and listen to me when I'm upset and listen to everything I have to say. And he's always there. Like, if I just walk into the room and I'm like, I need a hug right now. That'll be what makes me feel better. (laughs) It truly is amazing to see where I was versus where I am now. Absolutely. Uh, Courtney, what would you tell another survivor um, about that process? Like, what are your um, words of advice for others listening today? So my biggest advice, and it may sound completely cliche, but just talk about it. For the longest time, I felt like I was alone. What I went through can be incredibly isolating. And you may feel like no one else knows what's going on. But the more you talk about it, the more you realize other people know what you went through and know how to deal with that. So my advice ultimately is just to talk about it because it doesn't do you any good if you don't. Thank you, um, Courtney, for joining us, uh, sharing your story, sharing your your strength and and your journey. Um, Thank you also to all of our our listeners uh, who have joined us in listening and supporting Courtney in her journey and story. Yes. And for those of you who are looking for resources or support, visit takebackthenight.org for the list of resources that we have there and information about our legal support hotline. 
just remember that we are never alone. Courtney is testament to that fact. There are many walking with us in our healing, in supporting survivors, and in ending sexual violence. This has been a great episode. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. So stay safe, be strong, and together we will shatter the silence and end the violence. <laughs>